Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. Um, Brady alluded to a passage that I've spent a lot of time with, and I just thought I'd spend another moment with it. Hadn't planned on that, but um, so the, the last latter half of Acts chapter 17, um, I think it's a really good passage if you're in a place where, for a lot of reasons, but one of them would be if you're in a place where oh, what do I think exactly about God? I'm not so sure about all these things Christians say, but maybe there's something there. I think this is a good passage for that if that happens to be the place you're in. Uh, or if you just want to think about things from a different perspective, maybe. If, if, if Christian talk about God is too familiar, because here Paul's addressing uh, people who are not familiar with this God. So I'll just read it to you real quick, and then I'll move into what I was going to say. So this is Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? This is a court kind of thing. Um, For we are bringing, you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one person every nation uh, of humankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, And as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of humans. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to people that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. So I think that's a good passage to spend time with if it seems appropriate. 
So that's one thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to open with is I know there are some new people here. Today's message is not necessarily representative of what we usually discuss here, and I feel like I should just go ahead and say that. You'll understand why momentarily. <clears throat> so, uh, oh, nine-ish years ago, uh, I was in a church that I was a part of in a different city, and this woman came in, and she told us that she had been having a really hard time with life. She had been feeling suicidal, uh, just some difficult stuff going on. And she wanted to turn to God. She wanted to turn to Jesus Christ for help. And so um, we said, that's a good idea. We gathered around her. We laid hands on her and prayed, as we do. And we invited her to pray in her own words to God, asking for what she needed. And so she prayed this really heartfelt prayer to the Lord. And as she was doing this, her body suddenly started to shake really, really hard. Her eyes rolled up into her head so that you could only see the whites. And she looked basically like someone looks when they're having a seizure, from what, I, from what I've experienced of people having seizures. Um, and our pastors got in front of her, looked into her eyes and said, so-and-so, come back in the name of Jesus. They said it a couple of times. And then she stopped shaking. She started crying. She started coughing up some blood. And she told us that she felt filled with this intense feeling of hatred. And she told us she was really scared because nothing like this had ever happened before. She wasn't epileptic or anything like that. And this began, you know, we encouraged her, it's going to be okay. This began kind of a process of praying through things with people, getting healing and freedom. I don't know how that person's doing today because we're not still in touch, but that's a thing that happened. And I'll just let that hang over us for a moment <clears throat> and read you our passage for today, which is Matthew 9, 32 to 34. A demonized person who was mute was brought to Jesus, and when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed and said, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And so that's one of the demon stories that are in the Gospels. We encounter a number of them. I promised you last time I was up here that we'd talk about that soon, so here we go. Uh, in the demon stories of the Gospels, we see uh, whatever exactly we think is going on there. We see that demons dwell within people, whatever that means. They apparently cause sickness. They apparently cause self-destructive behavior in at times. They apparently have the ability to control people's speech. Uh, in this case, the, this guy was mute, wasn't able to speak until he was freed from this demon. Elsewhere, we see Jesus actually having conversations, apparently, with demons through people that they're dwelling in. Um, what we find is that when Jesus encounters something like this in the Gospels, he rebukes the spirit, which is like scolding or something. He commands them to come out of the person, or sometimes it says he casts them out, whatever we think casting something out of someone means. And we see that he not only does these things, he gives his disciples the authority to do these things as well, and they do them too. So that's kind of our data. <clears throat> uh, these stories may sound very, very strange to some of us. And um, 
I think for starters, I wanted to say in the ancient world that these stories arise from, these stories wouldn't have sounded so strange because in ancient cultures, typically, there's a notion of some sort or another that some kind of spiritual beings influence, exercise influence over the world that we live in. Uh, there's more going on than what's visible. And so demons and angels and, and other spirits are a common thing in most cultures. There's something like that. So these wouldn't have sounded that strange as much as they might sound strange to us. Uh, I, was, I remember watching a TED talk a couple years back and this woman was describing having a nervous breakdown and she said, uh, you know, I was hearing voices in my head that if you could imagine if the devil had Tourette's, that's what it, it was like. And then she paused and sort of glibly said, of course now with modern science, we know there's no devil, but that's what the experience was like. And I remember watching it and saying, well, which scientific discovery proves there's no devil? Um, we do have some explanations nowadays through neurology and psychology for certain phenomena that ancient peoples probably would have attributed to demonic spirits, things like hearing voices in your head. Uh, but that in and of itself, having another explanation doesn't mean that these things don't exist necessarily. Uh, in fact, the voices in the head particular, in particular, as far as I know, the Bible never attributes to any kind of spirit. Um, and so what I want to suggest is, you know, our tendency as modern people is to, maybe not our tendency in the room, but modern people's tendency is to say, oh, those foolish ancient peoples who didn't have all the cool science and technology that we have had all these, you know, ideas about ghosts and weird stuff. But now we know the truth. Now we've gotten rid of all that. And I want to suggest that's actually uh, not such a safe assumption that it works that way. It may be that our own worldview is anemic as Westerners. And so <clears throat> if you think about how people in Western civilization view the world, typically it's a one-level or a two-level understanding of how things are. For, for the atheist, um, there's, there's one level of existence. That is, there's the material world of trucks and cookies and dirt and other stuff, and that's it. And to a typical Western Christian, there's another level above that which has the transcendent, where you would think about God, you would think about heaven, afterlife, stuff like that. And while a typical Western Christian does think of God exercising some mysterious influence over what happens in the world we live in, it's a certain kind of influence. And to illustrate that, if Someone's sick, a Christian in the West typically will pray for them, and if they get better, they'll give God thanks. But usually, um, a Christian in the West, if they pray for someone to be healed, they don't expect them to get healed like during the prayer. They, it's more of a, okay, you know, maybe they'll get better and then we'll give God thanks, and if they don't, I guess it wasn't God's will, and that's that. So there's a, a certain kind of intervention, but not the kind we really read about in the scriptures. That's something that to a lot of people in what we might call the first world or the developed world or the West uh, have a hard time with. And people that aren't part of Western civilization don't have such a hard time with this. They have a sense that invisible forces influence the lives that we live, the mundane. So there's not only the transcendent and the material, there's something in between, which it's hard to come up with the right name for it. But whatever it is, people in the West have a hard time with it. And so some people that reflect on missions and sort of intercultural stuff uh, 
talk about our worldview, or at least the Western worldview that many of us are influenced by as having an excluded middle. There's some dimension of existence that the West doesn't describe well, and people that do engage others cross-culturally, people like missionaries, a lot of them are starting to say, yeah, I don't think it's that they're naive, I think it's that we don't have language to describe certain stuff that's going on. And so what happens is a lot of times if a group of people uh, accepts the gospel from Western missionaries, they'll continue to do things like visit shamans and carry out magic rituals and things because they have this feeling that this gospel doesn't address certain stuff that I need. And of course that, you know, we don't see that as appropriate for Christians. So a lot of people involved in missions have started to say, you know what, we need to better address the excluded middle. <clears throat> so, I think that the vineyard tradition, which is the tradition that our church, Basileia, is a part of, is a good example of a Western Christian group that tries to address the excluded middle. We uh, experience and believe in things like healing miracles, so not just praying for someone to be healed and maybe they'll get better and we'll give God thanks, but, you know, I've prayed for people to get healed and they got healed by the end of the prayer. This is something that we experience at least some of the time. Uh, we believe in things like that God can speak to a person and reveal something that they wouldn't have known had God not revealed it. I'd say that's part of that middle that the West has a hard time with. And from time to time in the vineyard, people have had encounters that look a lot like the demon stories in the Gospels. And so, insofar as this is what we imagine as Christians or what we expect or what we experience as Christians, I think that's what it looks like to be Christian and acknowledge that middle existence. I hope I'm not being too boring, but that's what I suggest to you is how we can think about this. Okay, so I think if, if this is all really weird sounding and hard to really take seriously, uh, I'll suggest to you that I think because of how the Western worldview trains us to think, it's hard to take these things seriously until you've experienced them. So, I, you know, when I first became a Christian, I uh, heard about people getting healed miraculously and all these cool stories. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I would say God could do that, but I certainly didn't expect it until it happened. And then I said, oh, okay, apparently that is a thing. I didn't, I had a hard time seriously believing, though I would have said God could do it, I would have had a hard time seriously expecting that God would speak to me in some striking way that actually corresponded to reality and that I would know something I shouldn't have known until that happened. And I said, oh, I guess that really is a real thing. Um, and similarly, until the experience I opened with, uh, I had a very hard time expecting to have any kind of demonic encounter until it happened. And so if you have a hard time accepting these things as real and have not experienced them, I really don't blame you because our existence has kind of trained us to not think like that, if that makes sense. And I also want to add, um, I don't think that believing in demons and angels and miracles and the stuff we read about like that in the Bible requires us to not accept science or something like that. Uh, I don't think they're really in conflict if we understand them both rightly. Uh, I'll tell you, I like science very much. I believe, I accept evolution. I accept a 14, oh. Okay. You all right? 
she'll be all right. Um, I accept a universe that's about 14 billion years old. I like the scientific method. I think it's wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think actually the scientific method, if we understand it rightly, helps us to have the humility to recognize we don't have everything figured out yet. Humanity doesn't know a lot about what's going on yet. So I think that if we're, if we're accept putting science in the right position it ought to occupy, it actually leaves a lot of room for a lot to be going on that humanity doesn't describe well scientifically yet. So I don't think anyone needs to feel a need to choose between those two things. I am happy to acknowledge both of them. Um, so that brings us to another topic, which is uh, how the New Testament talks about demons in particular. And as an ancient, to us it might sound like, okay, this, these texts are chock full of weird spiritual things that are unfamiliar to some of us. Uh, as ancient writings, they're actually rather vague on these things. A lot of ancient writings are happy to give you proper names of different spirits, describe the invisible realm that they inhabit, stuff like that. The New Testament, I think, is actually a move in the direction of vagueness and generalness about these things. Um, it doesn't actually make us think we ought to obsess over demons and angels and things like that. Uh, there are some Christian ministries out there that I think do obsess over these things, and that's concerning to me. Um, it's concerning to me because I don't get the impression we're to always be, you know, seeing demons everywhere and developing details and rules and theories and elaborate things like that. That's not what I see the scriptures pointing us toward. And we were talking about this um, a couple days ago, and uh, Brady actually had the very clever insight that I think might have come from the Lord, which is uh, in the story I, re I read you at the beginning, it's the Pharisees who offer a really detailed explanation for what happened. Um, and I think there can be something, if I may say, pharisaical about the desire to have all the answers and know all the rules and all these categories and things like that um, about demons. I don't think that's really where the New Testament directs our attention. What I do think the New Testament directs our attention toward is a few things, and I'll, I'll sort of close by saying what those are. The first one, and most important, is that Jesus has all authority. That's the main point, I think, of these stories. And so, um, if you look at the last couple of chapters of Matthew that we've been working through the last few months, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of Matthew 7, it says that the crowds marveled at Jesus because he spoke to them as one having authority. And then in chapters 8 and 9, which we've been working through recently, we basically see this parade of things Jesus has authority over. That's, you could summarize eight, chapters 8 and 9 like that. So here's my account of what chapters 8 and 9 teach us, and you may recall this from recent months and recent messages that you heard here. So basically it goes, Jesus has authority over leprosy. Jesus has authority over paralysis that torments somebody. Jesus has authority over a fever. Jesus has authority over the winds and the sea. Jesus has authority over demons, even lots and lots of them. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority over a woman's hemorrhaging uterus that Linnea talked to us about last week. Jesus has authority over death. And Jesus has authority over blindness. That's pretty much a summary of the last two chapters that we've worked through. And now we come to this passage, which kind of wraps that up. And we see... Uh, Jesus having authority uh, in a way that someone who was not able to speak is able to speak. 
Um, so I think that's the main idea. Everything, whether it's nature, whether it's spirits, whether it's sickness or something else, sins, Jesus has authority over all of it. The way Paul says it is, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has authority over all things. That means nothing can stand in the way of his purposes. Nothing can stand in the way of his purposes for you and me and the world. Um, as the text that got read at the beginning of the service puts it, um, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or the song we sang earlier, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, whether that's any of the chains, <laughs> any of the categories we talked about, spiritual, literal, whatever, the name of Jesus has authority to end all of it. And so I think that's the main thing that we should come away with when we read some of these passages in the New Testament. The second and also very important thing is that um, not only does Jesus have this authority, his followers, folks like us, actually get to participate in his authority over these things. Uh, the next chunk of Matthew that we'll go through we have Jesus uh, calling followers to him and giving them authority and sending them out to do the stuff he's been doing. 10.1 uh, says, Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. And so, as profound as it is that Jesus has this authority, I think it's even more profound and, and kind of surprising that he lets us participate in it. He gives us real delegated authority. And so I think that's important too, and I think that's something that a lot of Christians, especially in the West, have not paid enough attention to. Um, I'm not going to say more about that right now, but in the coming weeks we'll talk more about that as we get through some of that material. Um, third, I think talking about the, the excluded middle and all that and the kingdom that we've been talking about as we've worked our way through Matthew, one of the big things we've been trying to convey is we should expect God to work in our lives. So we're not mainly looking forward to dying and going to heaven. We're mainly looking forward to heaven coming to earth, and we see that in the present, and we wait for it fully in the future. Um, you've heard this if you've been around. You've heard this a bunch. The basic idea there is we should expect that God's salvation pertains to the stuff of our lives, the stuff we're involved with, the issues we're facing today, or our neighbor is, or whatever. So we should expect that God's going to show up, maybe even to bring us freedom from something in some surprising way. Uh, fourth, and finally, um, I think all of us, whether we are very comfortable with the demon stories and other supernatural-sounding things like that in Scripture or very uncomfortable with it, uh, I think the New Testament gives us good reason to have the humility to see that we don't have it all figured out yet. There's a lot we don't understand, and God may surprise us. Uh, God is surprising, and God is a disruptor of worldviews, so we may be surprised in a way that disrupts our worldview, regardless of where we are on the spectrum, if we're imagining it that way. So... Um, my blessing for us to close is uh, may we 
trust in, acknowledge, understand, discover more of, revel in Jesus' authority over all things. May we learn what it is to participate in that in the way he calls us to do that. May we expect God to work in observable, striking, and mighty ways in the world that we inhabit. And may we have the humility um, to be willing to be surprised, and may we expect to be surprised by God.